I'll let you take the pulpit. Well, good morning, church. I want you to know I'm very happy to be back to Bonner's Ferry. I woke up this morning, it was snowing a little bit, and uh, I was, I was uh, getting my northern Idaho fix. I was enjoying it and wanted to share with you that, uh, that my wife Jane, she uh, wanted to come and was not able to. And so, yeah, between the summer of 94 and the spring of 2004, you guys uh, asked me to be your pastor. And that was a privilege and an honor. A third of our ministry to this point was in this place. And you took me in, you took my family in. My youngest son, Shiloh, was born here. And you loved me uh, as your own. We worked together. And God uh, blessed very much. I believe very, very much that uh, I'm the man that I am today uh, a great deal because of uh, working with you. Uh, I believe I'm a better man and a, and a, and a better husband and a better father uh, because of this place. And so I'm happy to be back. Uh, we spent almost 18 years in the Wall Walla Valley after we left here. I mentioned last night that probably not too many, I think some of you knew, uh, but uh, probably most of you didn't know, that for many summers uh, during the time that we were transferred to the Wall Walla Valley, we took our vacation time and we came up here. And uh, we would camp and swim and canoe and climb mountains. And uh, when, we, when we left uh, we, my family, we had a little thing going where we said we're going through northern Idaho withdrawals. And now we're in Michigan. We're, we're go, I think we're still going through northern Idaho withdrawals, <laughs> although we're happy to be uh, where we're at. So it's good to join you this weekend. And it's my privilege to commend to you this morning uh, the sacred scriptures. The Bible is the fully inspired Word of God. It's the infallible revelation of His will, the authoritative revealer of doctrine, and the Bible is the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. So, what do you say? Let's prayerfully and humbly read between now and the time when Jesus comes. Let's prayerfully and humbly read and study the Bible more. For in it we will find hope for every crisis, but more importantly, we'll find our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died to redeem us from sin. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we take time this morning now to consider the sacred scriptures, we invite your Holy Spirit to attend our time and to open our hearts and our minds to simple Bible truth we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, our title of our study today is, This is My Patch. And this is our opening take, our responsibility to be faithful and to take courage in this great Advent movement. And uh, Pastor Brown, where's Eric at? 
I don't see. Oh, there he is. Eric, I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction between denomination and movement. We are a movement. So our responsibility to be faithful and to take courage in this great Advent movement is not diminished by the fearful, fearful or selfish or evil conduct of others in society or the church. On the contrary, the need for courage and faithfulness is increased when others fearfully acquiesce and run from that which is right. Another way of putting it, if others seem to run from the cause of God, it is then caused upon us by such unhappy circumstances to rise above ourselves and the situation and courageously retrieve the fortunes of the day. When others fail in standing for truth and righteousness, it is then time for the faithful to openly stand for the same. And not only openly stand for the same, but to openly share the grand truths that God has given to us as a movement. It is then time to courageously, I would like to suggest, stand as Shama did in days of yore, when he stepped to the midst of the bean patch and drew his sword. And by doing thus, sent the very clear message, this is my patch, and I will not yield. Will you open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel? We're going to the 23rd chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 23, you will need to follow along with us. If you don't, you might not be able to get every point there. So open your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Starting with verse number 8, the Bible says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lifted his spear against how many men? 800 whom he slew at one time. The next verse says, after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Now, we need to pause here. Before you think, can anything good come from somebody whose dad's name was Dodo? (laughs) Check it out. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men of David, when when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. And what did his hand do? The Bible there says his hand claved to the sword. He couldn't let go. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to spoil. After him was Shammah the son of Agi the Herite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop. Where was a piece of ground of lentils. A ground full of lentils. And if you look up that word lentils in the Hebrew language. It just simply means beans. And so I hope you don't mind me you know, moving from the King James story here, and rather than saying a field full of lentils, I'm just going to call it the bean patch today. Is that all right? Yeah. 
And the people, so after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the heir, right? And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was the piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood where? In the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Amen. Amen. So, in King David's army, we are given a list of mighty men, a muster roll of courageous soldiers who obeyed and honored God and did great things. The Bible says, these be the name of the names of the men that David had. Well, how did he get to the place where he had these kind of men? So hold your fingers here in 2 Samuel 23 and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I'm going to read several verses. Uh, Follow along with me. We're going to start with verse number 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 12 starting with verse 1. The Bible says, now these are they that came to David to Ziklag while he yet kept himself close because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers of the war. They were armed with bows and could use both the right hand and the left. Check it out. They were truly ambidextrous, weren't they? They could use the right hand and the left in hurling stones, shooting arrows out of the bow, even of, the, even of Saul's brethren of Benjamin. The chief was this guy named Ahiezer. And then it gives the list, oh, just a whole muster roll of the mighty men of David. And then you notice verse 8 says, And of the Gadites, they're separating themselves unto David into a hold in the wilderness, men of might and men of war fit for battle that could handle the shield and buckler whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as rose upon the mountains. And if you jump down to verse 16, and there came unto the children of Benjamin, Judah, to the hold unto David. And David went out to meet them and answered and said unto them, If you become peaceable unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if you become to betray me to mine enemies... Seeing there is no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers look thereon and rebuke it. Then the spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the captains, and he said, Thine are we, David, and on thy side, thy son of, thou son of Jesse. Peace, peace be unto thee, and peace be to thine helpers, for thy God helpeth thee. And then David received them and made them captains of the band. And so these men came to David when his fortunes were at the lowest ebb. And he himself, that is, David, was regarded as a rebel and an outlaw. And these men remained faithful to him throughout their lives. They were happy to follow a good cause in its worst estate. They were happy to do what? Yeah, they're happy to follow a good cause, even in its worst estate. That's just a side point that I threw in there. We won't charge anything for that. 
But I think that that's something that we need to be thinking and praying about between now and the time when Jesus comes. Amen? Weary of the evil government of King Saul, they struck out a path for themselves in which they could best serve their God, serve their country, and serve their king. And though this entailed great risk, they nevertheless moved forward by faith to support the one whom God had chosen to be the next king. They had no problem supporting and encouraging the young man David as he ran the wilderness and slept in caves. And when David came to the throne, how glad their hearts must have been when he went on conquering and to conquer. How must they, can you imagine, they must have rejoiced, each one of them, when they remembered the intense delight of the difficulties and the privations which they shared with their captain. And this is how David came to have such men. So now for us today, especially those of you who are in the strength of your youth, we do not wish to be enrolled and numbered with the warlike of society. But there is a role which is now being made up. A role of heroes who will do and dare for the cause and the mission of Christ. There are faithful and courageous ones today who are willing to go outside the camp and take up the reproach of Christ with confidence in God and confidence in his word, earnestly contending for the faith which was once delivered to the saints and will put everything on the line and venture all for Jesus Christ. And between now and the time when Jesus comes, there will come a time when it will be more honorable to find our names on the lowest place of the list of Christ's faithful remnant than to be numbered with princes, presidents, kings, or governors. Blessed is the one who can cast his or her lot with the son of David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and share in his mission, share in his task, share in his reproach, for the day shall come when the master's love, the master's power, the master's glory will be victorious and will be reflected in all of his followers. Amen. And so now we wish to turn our attention to one particular hero who was part of the mighty men of King David. His name was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite. And I'm looking at the clock. The clock right now I'm determining is an enemy to me. It's five after 12. And so we got another 20, 25 minutes here. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. Is that okay? So keep it rolling. I see the sign over here. All right. So now we wish to turn our attention to one particular hero who was part of King's David Mighty Man Shama. The Bible says he stepped to the midst of the ground that was full of lentils and he defended it when the Philistines surrounded it. And that's what the Philistines were like back then. They would, they lived on, you know, the west coast of the Middle East there along the Mediterranean Sea. They had their major cities along there and they would go over east. They would invade 
Israel in the Middle East there. They would invade other countries. And they would come in like terrorists and ninja hitmen. And they would hit, they would strike, they would rip the people off, and then they'd take off again. And so one day, Shama with his family and the people that lived in that village, they were in the bean patch. The Bible says that it was full. So what time of the season is it? It's harvest time. And they are picking the beans. The Philistines did not show up in these territories in their troops during the time of planting or the time of watering or the time when thing, the patch needed to be weeded. No, they showed up at what time? When the lentil field was full at harvest time, they come in, scare the people off, and then they would rip them off. They were the ultimate kipers. And so the Philistines surrounded this particular batch in a troop. And God's people, who that is their land, that is their blessing, that is their spot, what do God's people do when they see the enemy surround their patch? They hightail it. And Shama, what does Shama do? Can you see that in your mind's eye, so to speak? You and I see Shama doing, you know, he's picking beans. He's got his bushel basket and it's half full. He's picking beans. And he hears somebody scream and yell. He looks up and he sees people hightailing it. And then he looks around and he sees the enemy surrounding the garden patch. And you know what I think Shama did? I think he set his bushel basket down. Stepped to the midst of the patch. Reached down, grabbed some dirt. Rubbed it into his hands. Eyed the enemy that was surrounding them. Found the captain, looked him straight in the eye, and pulled his sword and planted himself. And by doing thus, he was sending a message. What message was he sending? Help me out. (laughs) This is my patch. This is my blessing. This is my mission. This is my task. And I will not yield. So, this is my patch. And let's see if we can lift some thoughts from the story that may be helpful to us as we think about why we are here in this place on the North Bench here in Boundary County. So I'm going to lift a few thoughts that are not going to be the major point. We're going to end with the major point, which is asking the question, why did Shama step to the midst of the patch to protect a bowl of beans? Why did he do that? So we're going to end with that. Let's cover a few, a few thoughts that are, I, I think will be helpful 
to lead us to that place. And uh, the first thought I'd like to lift from the story is the simple idea that the enemy of God's people, so who are we talking about? The enemy of God's people, and ultimately, who's the enemy of God's people? Satan is. So the enemy of God's people, the devil, has a bad habit of taking ground. And as we think about our task at this time in earth's history, think about the final movements that are before us, I think it's important for us to remember that the devil has a bad habit. And what's the habit? Taking ground. That habit started in a perfect place called heaven with an angel named Lucifer. And Lucifer thought it would be a good idea to usurp the throne. And you remember in Isaiah chapter 14, you can read those three verses, verse 12, 13, and 14. In my Bible, I have the personal pronoun, I, 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 circled in those two or three texts. Lucifer had the I problem. And his plan was to take the sides of the north on the mount of the congregation and to be in God's place. Ezekiel 28 says that his heart was lifted up because of his beauty. He ended up standing in front of the mirror too long, taking a look at the profile and saying, I'm not really that bad, am I? He ended up giving himself too many Amway pats on the back and ultimately took ground in heaven by convincing a third of the angels of the universe to join his side. And Revelation chapter 12 tells us that there was war in heaven. And there were two sides in that intergalactic battle. And what were the two sides? You had had the son, you had Jesus and his angels. And the devil and his angels. And how did that battle turn out? Hmm? The devil and his angels lost the battle and were kicked out. The devil and his angels, they are losers from the beginning. That should help us to determine which side we want to be on. And the devil has been trying to take ground from God and his people, his church, ever since. And so in this story, the Philistines surround the lentil field and the bean patch to take the goods And God's people flee, which leads to our next point. The devil not only has a bad habit of taking ground, but God's people have a knack for giving it up. The people were afraid, so they fled. And the enemy saw the backside of God's people and the bottoms of their feet, which God never intended to take place. And I can almost see the crooked smile of satisfaction on the face of the Philistines as they surrounded the patch and saw God's people flee. They gave up ground because they were afraid. 
And I believe the people of God today still have that same tendency. I have been guilty of that. What about you? We give up ground that God has given. We yield the gifts that God has meant to be a blessing. Sometimes we do this out of fear. Fear of what others might think or say if we were to take a stand. We at times fear that we might look odd or out of step with pop culture. We fear of being canceled, marginalized, or my son told me a few months ago, there's a new term, dad. It's gaslighted. We also give up ground because we don't like the property as much as we used to. We desire other ground more. We don't appreciate the blessings of God as we should because we have come to view matters in the same light as the world. And such ones in the church are called, they, they become what we call worldly Christians, if there is such a thing. The blessings of God are set aside and we run from the patch. And this is the devil's plan. But one of the things we need to understand is that the enemy is not necessarily interested or enamored with our beans. But he'll take them in order to eventually own our gold. The devil works step by step, doesn't he? And the territory we surrender today becomes his foothold for the next assault tomorrow. Another way of putting it, you give the enemy an inch and he will take what? A mile. And before we know it, we are living more for the things of this world than for the principles and the standards of God's kingdom. But in our story today, we see that Shama was a different character. Shama knew his God, and he knew what his God could do. Shama believed God, and he knew that he belonged to God, and so did his beings. Shama was a man of a different character because he believed in God, he believed in God's mission, and that mission changed him. His decision to stay in the bean patch and defend it shows that God's mission and gift to him and his family meant everything to him. It also shows that he was a man of marked individuality. He was a man of what? Marked individuality. He was a man of clear individuality of character. He was a man who knew himself, he knew his God, he thought for himself, he acted for himself, and he did not make, check it out, he did not make the fearful and selfish conduct of others as the measure of his service. But while the people of God fled, he walked to the midst of the patch and pulled out his sword. The personal obligation, here's the point, the personal obligation of each individual before God, especially at this time in earth's history, 
is a lesson that each one of us must prayerfully consider. Each one must believe for himself or herself. Each each one must trust. Each one must surrender to God. Each one must cooperate with God. Each one must pray. Each one must search the scriptures. Each one must commune with God. And each one must obey God. True religion is a personal thing. Each man or woman, whether they are a one-talent person or a ten-talent person, will on the great judgment, judgment day be called to account for his own actions and responsibilities. Therefore, each one here today and each one joining us live stream or watching this later, each one here today should live as before God who is all-loving, who is all-knowing, and who is all-powerful. We must, in our own individuality, consecrate ourselves to God day by day. In Steps to Christ, it's called our first work, consecrating ourselves to God, body, mind, and spirit entirely to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Shama did this when he stepped to the center of the patch. He felt that he must play the band, whatever the others might do, and therefore he bravely drew his sword against the uncircumcised Philistines. Another point along with this is, I do not find that Shama wasted time scolding the others for running away. Did he do that? No, he did not shout at them to return. Come back, I need help. And he did not need to say anything after the people of God returned to the patch. Expecting, what do you think they were expecting to see when they returned to the patch? Yeah, they were expecting to see Shama laying face down in the dirt and the harvest gone. So, Shama, he did not need to say anything after the people returned. Shama just turned his face to the enemy and drew his sword. And his brave example was sufficient rebuke and was more effectual than any sarcastic comment that he could have made when the people came back. Amen? Amen. Shama's responsibility did not diminish when the people fled. On the contrary, it increased. Every man, if every man would have stayed, then Shama could be content to fight with the others in that way. But that was not the case. So he stood alone in the midst of the patch and he had to rise above himself, above the situation and he knew that from a human standpoint he was done. But he also knew that God could do great things and that humanity and divinity when they work together then the Lord brings the victory. So listen. If we see problems amongst God's people, 
If we see problems in the church and see the people of God fleeing from our mission, it is then caused upon us by that unhappy circumstance to rise above ourselves and the situation and retrieve the fortunes of the day because that's the type of God that we serve that can give that. It will never do to allow the enemy of our souls and the nemesis of all that is good to gain, uh, all that is evil, to gain the victory. It is too late in the day for such to take place. Thus, God calls us to faithfulness and courage. In this prophetic movement, if we see that the conditions of the church is not all that it should be, we must leave no stone unturned to set it right. And leaving the no stone left unturned, you know where it starts? It starts with me. And it starts with you. We should not let it be forgotten that our responsibility in a certain sense begins and ends with ourselves. It's very easy to pick holes in other people's work, but it is far more profitable to do better work ourselves. If we would be wise, let us not cavil, trivialize, or complain about the conduct of others in the church but arise ourselves and step to the midst of the patch and smite the Philistine. Let us dare to stand like Shama and from the shortcoming of others gather motives for more a more noble life. Our our are our fellow believers in this great Advent movement, are, are they at times too worldly? Then we should become more spiritual and heavenly minded. Are they sleepy? Then we must pray for God to wake us up and be more active. Are they lax? Then we must be more firm and steady. Are they unkind? Then we must be more full of love. Are they playing the coward and running from the cause of Christ that, God, that he has given to this great Advent movement? That is the preaching of the everlasting gospel in the context of the three angels' messages. Are there people that are fleeing and running from that with whatever reasons? Then we should stand more firmly in the cause of Christ and the grand truths from this time and say, I will not yield these things. And so now we go to our final thought. Shama stepped to the bean patch. The question is, why did he do that? Why was he there in the first place? Why would he risk his life for a bowl of beans that he could put on the table? And you know what the answer was? The bean patch was more than a bean patch. That ground he stood on was a gift from God. It was a gift from God for a particular purpose and for a particular mission. 
If you were to go back to the early chapters of Genesis, you remember that God called a man named Abram from the land of Mesopotamia out of Ur of the Chaldees. To Abram, I want you to leave this place and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And the Bible says that Abram obeyed and he left. And why did God ask, as you read Genesis chapter 12 there and the other chapters in the story of Genesis, why did God ask Abram to leave his homeland and go somewhere where God would lead him, why did God ask Abram to do that? When you read in the story there, God told him, I'm going to bless you and your family, and your family is going to be like the stars of the heavens, and through you, how many families of the earth, how many of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed? All of them are going to be blessed. Through you is going to come the promised seed who would show the love of the Father and give his life to redeem us from sin. So, Abram, I want you to go and be that blessing. I will give you the spot in the land. And that promise went through Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to... Israel, he had his sons, and their sons had families, and they grew to a great nation. They spent over 400 years in Egypt. They were delivered with a powerful hand from God, freed and set at liberty, and were taken back to the land. And in the days of Joshua, that land was then portioned out by tribes, by the 12 tribes, and then the 12 tribes portioned it out to the families in their tribes. And Shammah received his portion of land by inheritance from his uh, father and grandfather, the generations before him, and he would pass it on to his progeny. And the whole purpose of that, that plot of land that was there, was that through them, they were, God would bless the property and the nations of the earth, God placed them at that apex of, of time to where the then known world, whether they traveled from north to south or south to north, they had to go through that piece of geography. They had to pass by Shama's bean patch. Whether they traveled from east to west, they had to go through that piece of geography. Geography, And so when people from different nations, let's say from Asia, would come through and say, Hey, how, how many bushels did your, did your crop produce this year? You know, why do you have 50% more bushels than we do? Why does your corn grow a little higher? And Israel was to point them to the God of creation and tell them the story of the promised seed and what God was going to do to redeem all humanity from sin if they would only choose. That was their blessing. That was their mission. That was their task. And if you and I were alive at that day, you know, I'd go up to Shama and say, Shama, hey, why did you do that? His answer would be, it's more than a bean patch. 
You know, this is God's blessing for the particular purpose of sharing God's love to all the nations of the world of what God is going to do in sending his only begotten son. So you and I, you know what we need to do? We need to ask the question, why? Yeah. Why, why is this church here up in this area in Boundary County? Yeah, we've reviewed some of the history there, Jason. I was so blessed by that. Why has God done so much for us here? Yeah, He's calling us to a particular mission, to a particular task. And it's the same as what Shama had in the nation of Israel, except for we're down the line in history. We're not talking about uh, the Messiah who would come the first time, but we are to share the gospel in the context of our end time message of Revelation 14 there, of the investigative, uh, of the judgment hour message, which is explained through the investigative judgment. Well, in Adventism, we call the investigative judgment. The gospel to be presented in the context of Babylon and what that is and why it's going to fall. And the context of the gospel in, in terms of the beast and the mark of the beast. You remove the gospel from those messages, none of, there's no hope. But you put the gospel there and it gives it power and life. And there are some in the church that say, well, I think we should just do the gospel and we shouldn't talk about Babylon or we shouldn't talk about the beast. That's a bunch of hogwash according to what God's plan was for his last day church. He set them in this time and that's you and me today. We are here at this time in this context with all hell breaking loose on the outside and it's still going to continue. God gave the goods for us to share in the, with the foundation of the everlasting gospel there. You and I have the answers if we are prayerfully going to God's word and understanding what the righteousness of Christ offers to us today. In this early Advent movement, God brought together Christian believers from different backgrounds and different denominations who went back to their Bibles, in particular, Daniel and Revelation, and began to preach and teach that Jesus would soon come. There was a man named Joseph Wolf. He was a Jew. He was what? He was a Jew that went back to his Bible. He was in the Middle East. And he particularly studied Daniel and Revelation. And he came to Daniel 8.14 and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And Joseph Wolf, he studied the 2,300 days. He studied the 70 weeks in, in chapter 9. He studied the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335. And you know what he concluded? He concluded that Jesus Christ was going to come again sometime in the early 1840s. And he preached that in the Middle East and throughout Asia and Northern Europe. Around the same time, there was a man named Edward Irving, an Episcopal minister in Western Europe. And he was studying his Bible, in particular, Daniel and Revelation. And he put together something. You know what he put together? 1260, 1290, 1335, 2300 days, 70 weeks. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to come somewhere in the early 1840s. Around the same time, 
A man named Manuel de la Cunza, a Roman Catholic priest in South America, went back to the Word of God and began studying, in particular, what books? Daniel and Revelation. And he went through that, put it all together, and he concluded that Jesus was going to come again somewhere in the early 1840s. And around the same time, a man named William Miller, a Baptist farmer in North America, began to systematically study his Bible, and he read headlong into Daniel 8.14. And he put it together. And he decided that Jesus was going to come again somewhere in the early 1840s. The historians call that time period of the early 19th century the religious awakening. Because God had his people that were from different backgrounds, different denominations, different belief systems, deciding, you know what, I'm going to check out the Bible. The Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos saw this event back in the first century and recorded it in Revelation chapter 10 where a little book would be opened and would have effect on how much of the land and the sea? All of it. And it would produce a sweet experience that would then become bitter. And after that, the message was given, and John wrote it down. The message was given, thou must prophesy again. And those early Advent believers, some of them went back to their knees, went back to their Bibles, and they asked God, what did we miss? And God showed them. And guess what they then did? They prophesied again. And you and I are here today because of their faithfulness and their obedience. This is the great Advent movement. And you and I today, we are part of something that is bigger than us. Yet God has given us the privilege of being alive at the very crucial time at the very end. And so you know what I have decided in this great Advent movement? I have decided that the die has been cast. The decision has been made in my life and in my family. And we have stepped over the line and we are all in. I'm a disciple of Christ. And I'm not going to look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. For my past is redeemed My present makes sense, therefore my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, and mundane visions. I no longer need, you know what I have found out? As the Holy Spirit has worked on my heart in my life, I have found out that I no longer need preeminence. Prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. Because I now lean by faith, live with patience, lift by prayer, and labor with power. So, 
With the grace of God, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions sometimes are few, but thank God Almighty, my guide is reliable. Therefore, my mission and my vision is clear. I cannot be bought or sold, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. And by the grace of God and the Spirit living in me, I will not flinch. What about you? I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the adversary. Negotiate at the table of the enemy or ponder in the pool of mediocrity. I'm a disciple of Christ, a child of the king, and part of something that is bigger than me. That is this great Advent movement with the mission that God has given for us at this time. And you're part of it too. Thus, we must go till he comes Give till we drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops us. And when Jesus comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing you nor me because we're standing in the patch saying, I will not yield.